You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, March 10th. All right. Uh, Dr. Minna, do you have any opening comments? Uh, yes, today. Um, so I'll take, uh, I'll take everyone's questions just after, but... Uh, we wanted to do this today instead of Friday like usual uh, because we are uh, announcing a new clinical trial that we're starting today. And uh, the, the trial is with City uh, with Citigroup. And so I wanted to just let people know, uh, let those of you who normally join uh, get, uh, get sort of first dibs to understand uh, how this trial is working and, and hopefully uh, work, uh, work to sort of report on it. Um, but also answer questions about that, and then I'll take uh, whatever other questions you might have. So the the trial that we're starting with City uh, today is um, what I think, at least for the U.S., it's a it's a fairly groundbreaking uh, study. I've been working with uh, Citigroup, and my team at Harvard has been working with Citigroup uh, for uh, quite a number of months now to sort of get this uh, trial up and running. The goal is to evaluate for. Um, for uh, the American workplace, how, uh, how well does frequent uh, rapid testing work in the home? Not surprising uh, if, you have, uh, if you have gotten to know me at all over this year. Um, uh, but the goal here is to ask the question, uh, what are companies doing and what is the workplace in, uh, in the United States doing right now, the workforce uh, and schools? Uh, and uh, can we do better than that to help slow transmission? Uh, so we're, uh, we are enrolling people, uh, specifically people who are, uh, who are part of Citibank uh, and Citigroup and, and their employees uh, to participate in this study uh, with the, uh, when they, it, participation essentially allows them to uh, test themselves uh, three times per week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, as well as a test to any symptoms. Uh, those people who aren't participating essentially do what they would be doing otherwise, which is uh, which is just to attest to symptoms. And so the goal uh, of, of evaluating this testing protocol over thousands and thousands of, of uh, city employees is to, uh, to see how many uh, infections can we prevent relative to what otherwise would have happened? How well can we uh, maintain uh, COVID-free working environments and get our workforce back, uh, back to work as quickly as possible? And so we're doing this in a very uh, regimented fashion. Every day, people uh, uh, are attesting to whether or not they have any symptoms at all and, and are providing us uh, with the results of their rapid tests. And this is giving us a, a, a very nice window to ask some very fundamental questions, like how many people are asymptomatic and potentially spreading this virus before, uh, before they actually uh, are detected as positive through, uh, through symptoms. And that would be sort of the status quo at the moment. Uh, how many working days can we prevent uh, people from having to stay at home because of quarantine or isolation uh, by letting uh, their colleagues uh, know that they're infected uh, very rapidly before they go on and spread uh, the virus in the workplace. And so the way that we're doing the study is uh, in collaboration both with, uh, with City, but also uh, there's a different collaboration which, uh, which is happening, and that's between uh, a rapid test company called Innova and 
an AI-based company called LivePerson. And this is where I think the real crux uh, and where interest from me personally came from to actually study this is that LivePerson is, uh, it's an AI-based company that makes these chatbots for, for lots of companies around the world. Um, and so as a result of COVID, they decided to start turning their technology, which is normally helping people navigate things like banking systems or websites. If you go into a website and you see a, a little chat that shows up that says, can I help you? That's oftentimes powered by this company called LivePerson. And so LivePerson and the test company called Innova got together and said, you know, how can we actually um, think through allowing the average everyday user to be able to use a test in their own home? Uh, and what, what they came to was to develop a new tool called Bella Health, uh, which I think is pretty cool anyway. And it's, uh, it's essentially an, an app that allows people to... Uh, on the one hand, put in their symptoms if they've had any symptoms, but also when it comes to these tests to, uh, see, um, to see videos and see kind of instructional manuals in an extremely intuitive way uh, to understand how to use these tests at home, how to read them. Uh, and ultimately, if you have any questions, they can then just start chatting into the app and somebody starts chatting back with them immediately. Some of it's uh, AI based and some of it's real person. And this is what this company Live Person is very, very good at doing. Uh, so I think that, you know, when I look at this, and, and a lot of people have asked me over the, the year, um, you know, how can we get Americans to actually understand how to do these simple tests? If the tests have any complication at all, um, Americans won't, won't do well with them. Well, on the one hand, I think Americans can do them just fine. They're really, really simple tests. Uh, but uh, the concerns warranted, uh, warranted trying to come up with a solution. And so in this case, I think a very natural solution is to use the technology and tools we all have at our disposal every day, which many Americans have supercomputers in their pocket uh, called a smartphone, and to essentially give them the power of being at a physician, of being at a professional testing location, but right there on their phone so that they can actually just start asking questions. So we're measuring, uh, as part of the study anyway, we're, we're measuring how well do people engage with this uh, application? Are people actually able to use it? Uh, are people enjoying it? Uh, does it allow them to use their tests more appropriately and effectively? So uh, we only uh, recently started the study just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we've enrolled uh, around 1,000 individuals and we're going to be enrolling uh, around 6,000 uh, individuals as this, in this phase of the trial. And uh, we're going to be monitoring uh, people's test results and how well these uh, tests are working to identify people early, uh, how well people are using these uh, application-based sort of approaches to help them be able to use this. And uh, what I would like to see at the end of the study in a few months is a roadmap, a roadmap to give to uh, Americans and, and to give to uh, international businesses as well and schools and colleges and, and, and everything else that says these are the types of approaches that are or are not working. Uh, and ideally, uh, when we start to see cases resurge again in the fall, if not before with, with variants, uh, we'll be in a better position to curb those outbreaks uh, in part through the use of tests like these uh, rapid tests, um, but, um, but through a whole plethora of, of tools. And I wanna see us in, in just a much better position overall to be able to use modern technology uh, to help uh, to help curb spread of pandemic viruses today, 
uh, in the future and in, in new outbreaks. Um, so uh, I'll stop there and see if anyone has any questions uh, specifically uh, about uh, this study to, to begin. Uh, first question. Uh, yeah, hi, thanks so much for, um, thanks so much for doing this um, and thanks for de discussing um, the study. Um, I guess on the study specifically, um, could you talk a bit about, um, there's been rapid testing studies um, uh, kind of looking at whether they can reopen theaters and reopening kind of public events with rapid testing. Um, could you talk about the difference between maybe rapid testing in a controlled setting and rapid testing at home and why you're interested in that? Sure. So I think too, you know, I, I look at rapid tests, especially rapid antigen tests specifically uh, in this sort of red light, green light fashion. Um, a test that is a red light test is one that uh, when it's negative, you continue doing everything else you were doing regardless of whether or not you were using the test. Uh, and that might be continuing to distance or mask get a vaccine, whatever, whatever public health efforts you're participating in. But if it's positive, you, you hit stop, you don't, you don't go to work, um, you get a confirmatory PCR, which um, by the way, in this study, we are uh, getting everyone, because it's a study, we are also getting confirmatory uh, PCR tests on, on everyone when they turn positive. Uh, and that's part of the evaluation process. But, uh, but to, uh, to use tests, uh, if we start using these types of tests at a massive scale, we can actually find uh, that we can curb epidemics, not just keep a specific location safe, uh, but actually sort of bend the arc of, uh, of an epidemic by getting that R value, the reproductive rate of the virus, uh, down below one. So that viruses, when sudden epidemic, when it starts to arise, it actually just stays suppressed. Uh, and if we can do that, then we could have, for instance, um, prevented the fall surges that just hit. Uh, if, if every American household had these tests uh, in their homes back uh, last summer, which was possible, uh, we could have potentially prevented hundreds of thousands of deaths by preventing the epidemic from getting out of control in the fall and winter. But the only way we can really do that at scale, in my opinion, is to, uh, is to get these tests into the home. Uh, for school-based testing, the best way to distribute the effort of doing massive testing is to do it inside the home, not put it on the workplace, not put it on the school. Uh, if additional layers of protection are desired by theaters, um, by schools, by, by other uh, avenues, I think that that should be secondary in many ways relative to preventing the outbreaks from arising in the first place. So my first interest in sort of getting wide-scale testing out is to just is to keep R below one and get the and, and get get uh, get the epidemic to not re resurge in the fall. And if we can uh, if we can keep R below one, what that means is that even if cases start to pop up in a community, if enough people are testing on a regular basis, the outbreak just won't ever, appear. It will be a blip and then it'll be gone. Uh, so that's the best way to keep our community safe. Secondarily, 
is to have what uh, you're describing, which is entrance screening. Entrance screening is exactly how it sounds, which is uh, you want to have uh, a, a proper setup of using the tests right before somebody walks into a theater or a building. Uh, and that can be extremely effective as well. It's not going to bend the whole arc of an epidemic, but it's going to allow certain facilities that want to put those uh, in place to get back uh, to get back to session. We saw great examples of entrance screening uh, in uh, all across New England colleges this whole year, where even in the midst of, of massive resurgence of cases, the one places that should have been considered the petri dishes to harbor massive amounts of infections turned out to be little protected oases because of frequent testing. And those were colleges and universities. Uh, so even when there are lots and lots of cases happening around those colleges and universities, they generally did an extremely good job at preventing cases on their campus from persisting and preventing large outbreaks because of frequent testing. So that's um, so entrance screening can work extremely well. Uh, it just needs to be, uh, I think, it, the, the the two types of testing need to be performed in concert. Lauren, do you have a follow up question? Um, I have a question on um, a bit of a different topic, if I may. Sure. Um, I was wondering, we're now coming up on um, on exactly tomorrow, a year since COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. Um, and I guess when we're thinking in retrospect to a year ago, um, it does seem a bit late. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that kind of time um, and maybe it was there, do you think complacency on behalf of governments um, because this was maybe a coronavirus and this hadn't, ha you know, there had, that hadn't been a pandemic from a coronavirus. And what could we kind of learn now that it's been a year from, from what happened? Thanks. Um, the short answer is, uh, you know, people like myself were extremely frustrated that it wasn't uh, being declared a pandemic yet. I mean, in, in early January, we knew that this was a pandemic. And many of us were saying it publicly. Um, uh, I, I think that you know, I I'm I get frustrated even thinking about it because I would like to say that we have learned. We've learned that uh, we need to take this virus seriously, uh, and part of that was you know the moment we saw that the virus was spreading across all of East Asia, uh, in Southeast Asia, and into the Middle East. Uh, all within weeks of it first being discovered, uh, we should have declared it as a pandemic virus. Uh, we didn't, uh, the world didn't. Um, and that to me was the beginning of, of uh, an inaction as a response of uh, tempering any sort of urgency in our response. And ultimately it caused the world to end up where it, where it did. Uh, and in the United States, we're one of the worst perpetrators of this. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, the, the inaction that happened initially uh, to not call it a pandemic, to hedge and say that this isn't going to be something we really need to prepare for um, caused massive issues. I remember um, early, uh, well, no, I think it was already March, I was speaking with some of the major test manufacturers, the ones that build the PCR laboratory tests. And they were still asking the question when I would call them up and say, hey, you know, we need tests. Uh, where are you guys at with your COVID tests? A number of the major ones in the world were still saying, 
uh, we're not really sure if we're going to be building a COVID test. Um, and you know, had the WHO back in January said, this is obviously a pandemic um, by definition already, uh, that would have given the companies uh, a couple of months head start to start building uh, their testing infrastructure, uh, not even getting to these rapid tests or anything, just the PCR tests. And so um, there are major consequences to not uh, looking at the writing on the wall, taking a very fact-based approach and just saying, hey, this is a pandemic, let's let the world know. Uh, we're seeing the remnants of that type of thinking continue today where uh, we are hedging uh, our FDA continues to hedge on whether these tests can be used uh, in the United States at home by people without a medical prescription, which is why we're doing this clinical trial. But a year into this, uh, this pandemic, after everything we've seen, we're still really talking about whether people need a, a prescription from a physician to get a COVID test. Um, you know, that is just, uh, it's appalling to me at this point. And, um, and unfortunately, I think that your question just arises, you know, brings up the beginning of all of this, the, the beginning of, of, our, of our inability to really rise to the challenge uh, as, a, as governing agencies and policymakers to, to really tackle this virus in a way that it needed. Great, thank you so much for your time. Next question. Hi, uh, this is also a question that is not pertaining to the study. I hope that's okay. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, um, after the CDC guidelines were announced on Monday, I've been getting a lot of um, questions from readers and even colleagues alike, uh, particularly um, with the part about the quarantining. So uh, apparently uh, vaccinated individuals don't have to quarantine um, even if they have been exposed to um, a suspected or confirmed case of COVID um, if they're not symptomatic. Um, so a, a lot of people um, you know, were asking me why. And so it is sort of a head scratcher, especially since we don't have much data on asymptomatic transmission um, among immunized individuals. So I wanted to get your take on it. Um, well, it does. I, I think the blanket uh, recommendation is uh, is one that rightfully raises eyebrows. Um, uh, the CDC is in a is genuinely in a in a in a tough position in trying to balance many priorities. Um, the vast majority of the discussion during this pandemic has prioritized uh, has prioritized dealing with. Uh, transmission of this virus and stopping the uh, outbreaks with very, very good reason, uh, obviously. Uh, but um, once we start to see vaccinated individuals and, and vulnerable people get uh, vaccines and be protected, at least for the time being, while we, while we believe that these vaccines are really working well still with the strains that are circulating, um, the, the CDC has to prioritize other pieces of public health, which, ex, which, which include um, mental health and economic health. And so all of this, uh, I would say, goes into their thinking around you know, where, does the, where does the balance uh, exist? And this has been a discussion that should, you know, I think has been raised throughout the whole pandemic. It's part of the reason why I started working with economists very early to understand 
you know, what are the what are some of the trade-offs we're making when we when we try to just focus on the virus? Where where is public health maybe getting challenged in other places? And so I think the CDC is genuinely trying to come up with balance. They're trying to come up with policy that's going to make sense. Uh, should they say that everyone should just throw away the masks? I don't think that that's, you know, I think keeping our masks on despite uh, being vaccinated is just simple enough. If you're already wearing a mask, just keep wearing a mask. Uh, you know, until we really see cases dwindle to, to very low, we still have almost a thousand deaths per day in this country. Uh, the virus, the epidemic isn't done. Uh, even if we want it to be. Um, but trying to then balance quarantine uh, is a different issue if we really have good evidence that people are not transmitting. That said, uh, I would say that the evidence that people who are vaccinated don't transmit is mediocre at best. Um, they probably don't transmit as much, but certainly we know that people who are vaccinated can grow and harbor virus not as much, which makes sense. We didn't even need the data to tell us that. You know, we could have guessed that uh, people who are vaccinated and protected from symptomatic disease are probably not going to have as much virus, if any. But we do know that uh, that they can still harbor virus. And so, one of the big questions that we don't know is when when vaccinated individuals or previously infected individuals harbor virus, is it still as transmissible? Uh, are they still likely to go and infect somebody who hasn't been vaccinated? Um, I would say we don't have a good scientific answer for that. And so in some ways, the, the decision I think was more, was less about being sure about that data and more about prioritizing other components of public health. And, uh, and those are some of the pieces that are really hard to quantify, especially after a year of just talking about the virus, to really try to quantify what are the competing interests of public health is a very difficult thing to do. Um, so I'm, I, I don't know that I'm in a position to, uh, to advocate or not for that decision, but I think uh, I can see where they're coming from, even if the science doesn't fully, fully align with it from a viral perspective, I think that the, the other pieces that they're trying to protect are probably very valuable. Have a follow-up? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I understand uh, where you're coming from uh, in terms of like balancing people and what they want, especially with uh, the economy and whatnot. Quarantining is a you know a temporary thing, right? And and um, especially, I mean, does it have anything to do with testing as well? Because they're not required to do testing. Are we limited in testing still? Is that a thing? I mean, uh, my my very clear. Uh, opinion on, on the matter is uh, we could have probably greatly limited our need to quarantine a long time ago if everyone had tests in their home that, and, and you could use. If you, if you knew that you were going to have to go into quarantine, maybe you could actually um, still, uh, still continue to participate in society if you were testing daily. Uh, there's no reason to think that that couldn't have been a much better approach. Uh, but uh, to answer your question, I mean, the testing infrastructure still is not working in this country, despite all of our efforts, uh, not even, you know, the PCR infrastructure is just not equipped to stop transmission. Uh, when in our, in our public opinion poll of Americans that we released a couple of weeks ago, 
Uh, we found that two thirds of Americans have never received a single test. Uh, so for us to, and, and one third, you know, the, the vast majority of people who have received a single test have received one. You know, that is not um, a way to test, trace, and isolate. Uh, I mean, test, trace, and isolate just wouldn't, it never would have worked with the PCR lab setups that we have. And uh, I think that we, if we were to fix the testing problem, then all of a sudden these issues, like we would have so much more flexibility in terms of, you know, making these declarative statements, should you quarantine, should you not quarantine? Maybe we could say you quarantine for five days and then you test yourself at home. And if you're still negative, uh, then, then you can leave because we know that most people who are going to become infected during quarantine will do so in the first five days. Um, you know, there's so much more option that we could have had if we actually had testing available. And it's not just about the test. I mean, the, the, the point is that it's, this is all about knowing that you're infected. Quarantine is like taking a sledgehammer and saying, uh, whether you're infected or not, we're gonna put you in jail for 14 days uh, uh, in your home, uh, just in case. And we know that most people who are in quarantine don't become positive. And so it's an inefficient public health tool uh, but because of its great inefficiency, it's one of the first things to go once people start getting vaccinated. And I think if we could have made it much more efficient, uh, for example, have uh, instead of quarantine, you could have daily tests. I mean, heck, these things are so inexpensive. You could have uh, twice a day testing. Test yourself in the morning, test yourself in the evening. Uh, and uh, and you know that would be enough to catch essentially everyone that would have potentially gotten infected and, and found out that they were infected during quarantine. Um, so, you know, I wish that, that, that this wasn't even a discussion that the CDC was having to make, that they could have said, just keep doing your testing, it's 30 seconds a day. Um, but instead they're balancing 14 days in, in quarantine, which is a massive, massive economic loss to, to, to companies uh, it's, you know, one school having to quarantine, for example, if a classroom has to quarantine because of one infection going into a classroom, that's almost a year of person time spent away from uh, school just because of one quarantine uh, event uh, in the classroom. And so, you know, it, it is a massive uh, issue that the CDC wanted to tackle, but I, I think we had better tools that we, I wish we could have deployed. Great, thank you. And I would say, I think we can still deploy them um, if regulatory barriers would, uh, would allow. Uh, next question. Uh, hi, Michael. I just wanna to backtrack to the, the trial for a minute. Can you, um, when do you expect results out from this? Um, and I'm curious about that in relation to the comment you made about a fall surge. I think a lot of people, uh, even though there has been um, uh, advice to the contrary, I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, we're all going to get vaccinated and this is going to be over by the fall. Uh, people are thinking that you're absolutely correct. Um, unfortunately, um, I don't think that that's going to, it's going to be as peachy as, as we hope. Um, um, but to, to answer your question, uh, we're going to be, the, the trial right now is set to run for four months. Uh, we're going to be doing an interim analysis uh, too. Uh, along the way, this isn't, it's not like a vaccine trial where people are blinded. 
So we're monitoring on a, on a near daily basis just to, um, as the study team, uh, we're not interacting directly with the participants, but we are monitoring the results as they come through. Uh, and already we're seeing benefits. Uh, we've already had a number of participants who were completely asymptomatic uh, uh, and would have gone to work, uh, who found out that morning before work that they were uh, infected. And again, because it's a rapid antigen test, that means that they were infectious uh, as well, and uh, or very likely to be. Um, and so, you know, those uh, those uh, events alone have showed us, look, this is working. These people were completely asymptomatic. Uh, I haven't looked, uh, I haven't followed up uh, yet to find out, did they become pre-symptomatic or were they pre-symptomatic and then gain symptoms? But either way, they would have gone to work uh, on those days uh, and without, uh, without knowing that they were positive and transmitting. And so we're already starting to see the benefits uh, in terms of the other components of the study, which are trying to evaluate uh, how well people can learn to use these tests at home uh, through the use of an AI-powered app, um, uh, that, that's been great. We, did, uh, we recently did a, a, a feedback kind of uh, survey to get, uh, to get information from people about you know, how are they thinking about it, was it helpful, and, and overwhelmingly, uh, the answer was uh, yes. And in response to the overall program, uh, the overwhelming comment is something akin to, I don't understand why everyone doesn't just have these in their home already. They're so simple to use. Um, so we're already getting the, the data and I think it's already going to start informing uh, much of the discussion uh, you know, in, the, in the near future. Uh, we'll have the full, of course, the full data set will be only accrued in four months time or three, three and a half now, but, uh, but we're monitoring it closely. How, how important to your mind is this study um, in making an argument to the FDA that these kinds of tests you deployed as public health tools um, are important? I know you've, you've commented in the past that the criteria are wrong for which these uh, you know, screening tools are being used. Yeah, well, we're, we're submitting a paper um, today, probably, which mathematically shows that the criteria is impossible uh, in terms of what the, uh, what the FDA is asking for, uh, unless companies go and totally skew their representative asymptomatic people. Um, uh, I don't think that this study is, frankly, going to uh, influence or not the FDA whatsoever. Um, uh, I think where it can be uh, influential, uh, assuming that the data it, it continues to be positive uh, about these as a tool to prevent transmission, uh, is to uh, go to HHS or CDC and say, look, there, there's a, a clear disconnect. Um, these tools are public health tools, and somebody needs to just declare them as public health tools so that the FDA can stop having to evaluate them as medical tools. This could be on the FDA. The FDA could come up with a new pathway uh, to evaluate tools which have a primary purpose of public health. Uh, they have not done that yet, and I don't anticipate that they will do that during this pandemic, uh, unfortunately, uh, and perhaps never do that. Uh, so, 
the CDC and, and Health and Human Services, I think, can declare uh, there are pathways that we that I could envision that a tool like this gets you know declared as a public health tool and not a medical device, and that would uh, allow the the tools to be maybe taken over in terms of uh, in terms of certifying different public health tools for Americans to use. Uh, maybe that challenge would go to the CDC or HHS in some other way, or, or the NIH. Um, I think that there's new ways. Uh, it might require, you know, what I would like to see is a presidential order um, from the president to, to look at the landscape of all of this and say, what the heck are we doing? You know, what, what has happened? What has gone wrong? Why are we still declaring these tests as medical devices this long into a pandemic when they're clearly devices that are meant to just be used for people to just monitor themselves at home. The average American should be allowed to know if they're harboring virus in their nose without having to go through an expensive doctor's visit, uh, even a virtual one, which adds, which adds cost. You know, the American public should, the fact that we're preventing the American public from just allowing themselves to know if they're infected is, is remarkable to me. And so I think the fastest pathway here would be if we, if the data really shows, look, this has helped a major international organization get back to work safely. And it worked well in thousands and thousands of people, uh, then maybe this is a public health tool and maybe the president or uh, HHS uh, in conjunction with CDC could uh, determine that in some more official way. Very good, thank you. Uh, just uh, to let everybody know, uh, Dr. Minna needs to uh, go to another meeting at 1045. So we have just a few minutes left. Uh, uh -oh. Next question. I'm sorry? I'll speak quicker. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, next question. Uh, hello, doctor. Can you hear me, sir? Yep. Okay. I want to ask you specifically about the tests that you're calling for. We know that currently the FDA has given emergency use use authorization to five at-home tests. And there are plenty more on the web that a person can get that haven't received such authorization. So which tests in particular would you like to see? Uh, and should they be mailed to all Americans or should Americans have availability? Sure. Yeah, just to be clear, the tests that don't have EUA are currently illegal. Um, maybe people can buy them on the web. Uh, but uh, per US uh, regulation, they are not legal. Um, uh, and so there's a, a number of different tests that I would like to see. Laboratory tests are not one of them. Laboratory tests have a place in this pandemic as medical, uh, as medical diagnostic uh, lab, devel lab developed tests and EUA authorized tests. Uh, but what I would really like to see is tests that are fast. A test that is fast starts to approach a public health test. Uh, a test that determines that somebody is infectious and not potentially has been infected weeks ago is a public health test. Uh, a test that anyone can do simply on their own is a public health test. And, uh, and a test that is equitably distributed and accessible is a public health test. The PCR laboratory tests fit essentially none of those categories, um, unfortunately. 
And so uh, the rapid antigen tests, and increasingly we're going to see rapid molecular tests, can be the types of tests that I'm, that I'm calling for. These are tests that anyone can use in the privacy of their own home. Take you know, a minute of hands-on time to actually use uh, that could be done with or without reporting. Uh, and I think where the FDA is going is they're going to continue demanding reporting because it's, uh, well, I'm not going to detail with it, but uh, those, are, those are the types of tests. Um, we do have some EUA authorized tests. All of the ones that are at home uh, are currently still require a medical prescription, and that greatly drives up the cost. A pack of five tests that should be $5 or, or you know, maybe $25 total, but I would like to see it at a dollar per test, is $125. That means we have made these tests, the tests that are available to Americans at home are, are available to rich Americans. You know, the, it is just, it's completely backwards uh, what we're doing. Uh, to charge for prescriptions for a test that most people are getting an Abbott Binex Now test. They get the box at home, they've paid for the prescription, and then they never even use the medical service. They open the box, it's a simple, simple test, uh, and they just go and use it uh, you know, on their own. Um, but yet they've had to pay the extra 100 or $120 for the medical service that they're not even utilizing. So that's a that's a you know I wish that our that our regulatory agencies would look at the reality of what people are doing, and say and recognize that these prescriptions are costly and reduce equitable access to testing. Um, uh, there are some other tests which are which by themselves are expensive. You know, in order to get around this reporting issue, and to uh, to there's the tests like Alum. Alum is a rapid antigen test, uh, just like any of the very, very simple paper strip tests, doesn't perform any better uh, than those, uh, but it alone, but it has batteries and circuit boards and it's expensive. And so that's not a test that we can use as a public health tool. It's gonna to be you know, tens of dollars, maybe 30 uh, or $40 by the time it's purchased and, and sold to a customer by Walgreens or CVS. Um, so, uh, so those are not the tests I want. I, I just want to see the simplest paper strip test, like the Avid Binex now, like the ANOVA test, which we've evaluated in other studies, and it's performing as well as the Avid Binex now. Uh, only it can scale to ten times more. They can make, you know, right now I think they make like fifteen million per day and export those around the world outside of the United States. It's a U.S.-based company. I would like to see those types of tests start to be used. And in the future, I'd like to see the CRISPR-based molecular tests, if those come along, the other sort of very simple molecular uh, assays, like those, those will be the next iteration of at-home tests. And they might be a little bit more sensitive, et cetera. But right now, what I really would like to see is these very, very dead simple paper strip antigen tests and Dr. without prescription. Without a prescription, and Doctor, uh, currently I know that at, uh, Yale has something called Saliva Direct, which is similar to what you're saying. Are those the types of tests that you are looking for? And and finally, I would uh, re ask why you think uh, fall will not be, as you say, as peachy as we like to imagine that it would be. Sure. Yeah, just to be very, very, very clear, saliva direct is a laboratory-based PCR test. It doesn't, um, 
it's essentially the original CDC PCR based test. It's not a rapid test. It's a full complex laboratory based test that just uses saliva instead of a nasal swab. Everything else is essentially uh, the same. Uh, so it still has to go get shipped to a lab. Everything is the same. It still takes days to return, et cetera. So that's not the kind of test. I'm, I'm really talking about the simple little paper strip test that anyone can use at home uh, with a simple nasal swab that they do themselves or, or even potentially saliva-based at-home tests as well. Uh, in terms of the fall, uh, I think that we're going to see resurgence because this is a very seasonal virus. Every year we see surges of beta coronaviruses like SARS-CoV-2 uh, come back and then we see them fall off very quickly towards the end of January and into February, which is exactly uh, what we saw uh, with this virus. Um, and uh, I think that we're going to, uh, you know, the, the vaccine-derived immunity, uh, particularly in the elderly, probably won't last uh, as long as we're all hoping. Uh, elderly are kind of famous for not being able to hold uh, immunological memory very well. Uh, it's part of the aging process. And so, uh, I think we will start to see breakthrough cases. We'll see continued some level of transmission amongst vaccinated individuals, as I discussed earlier. Uh, and if that happens and we start to see waning of protective immunity, which we don't know will happen, but uh, it, it very well could happen, uh, then we might even see increased cases come with increased hospitalizations. And I think we have to just be very cognizant. We can hope, let's hope that that doesn't happen but I think it's unlikely that we won't have uh, surges. I think it's very unlikely that we'll have surges as big as what we have seen uh, in the, the recent fall and winter, but we will probably have surges and, and society is gonna have to make decisions. Do we continue counting cases and shut schools down or do we really count hospitalizations and deaths and, and allow society to keep running despite cases uh, 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 if people are protected. And, and the, there's a lot of unknowns there, but I think we will see cases reemerge. Um, I, I just wanted to take one, one more question from... Uh, yeah. Yeah, how are you doing? You've been screaming the same argument into the wind for about a, a year now, and you haven't gotten much response. And my question, even the tests that are on the market now, and the one I believe that doesn't require a prescription, you're talking 40, 50, 60, 70 dollars. Have you, you clearly haven't given up hope, but my question is what, what gives you hope that we're gonna get a test that people can take at home every day, and, or twice a day, as you pointed out at one point, and uh, make it, uh, an effect on this pandemic? Because it, testing sure has not gotten a good reception despite all your efforts to, to shout? Well, it's a good, uh, you know, it's a, am I going crazy? You know, am I just crazy for trying to repeat the same thing over and over and over for a long time? Uh, and I, I think, no, I think, you know, one regulatory change, just one, just one regulatory change would allow Americans to have these tests in mass. You know, the company Innova is willing to, and, and probably a lot of these companies, if you get rid of the medical prescription, uh, you'd see that these tests will start being sold for three three bucks a piece, something like that, four dollars a piece. Uh, the reason that I keep going, uh, frankly, is um, I mean, there's the public health reason that I think that these are very powerful. But why do I keep doing it here? 
The reason is, as I keep talking about it, I'm seeing more and more countries outside of the United States picking this up. So my advocacy in the US, uh, I don't think stops at the US. Um, just yesterday, I was on, on the phone with a prime minister of one country and, uh, and the leadership of another country. And so, uh, and it was all about them rolling out rapid tests. Uh, so, uh, and, and frankly, many of the countries that are doing it are pointing to uh, a lot of what I've said uh, over the year and the research that my team has put out over the year uh, as evidence for why they're thinking of doing this and why they're acting on it today. So, you know, I'm American. I live in the United States and I really want uh, us to benefit as a country from smart public health and from following, making science-based decisions on, on how to best combat the virus. Uh, but, you know, if the U.S. Um, can't do that uh, and can only think of medical interventions and biological interventions as, the, as a strategy, um, so be it. Uh, my, the, the, what I'm saying to the world, I think, uh, does truly get out uh, globally. And so that's why I keep doing it. I, I would like to see the United States get on board. Um, but if we don't, uh, I feel, um, you know, I mean, from a very, very personal perspective, I, I think, uh, I feel extremely strongly about this, that if, if this, if all of my advocacy were to go and save, you know, prevent one additional life from, 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 from getting lost, then that's completely worth it. That's why I went into public health. Um, if somebody were have said to me a year ago, hey, would you, would you yell into the void about rapid tests for a year if it means my mom doesn't die this year? You know, maybe I would have thought that's a funny question, but I would have said yes if it was correct. And uh, of course I would say yes. Um, and so this has an opportunity to, to have that magnified by you know tens or hundreds of thousands or more, and so uh, it's a it's a small effort on my part relative to the toll that this virus has taken, in my opinion. Whether it's smart anymore, I I, I can't say, um, but I do think that uh, as more and more countries are picking up this idea, uh, I I think that it it does pay off, and we saw we've seen it it really be beneficial. We've seen it prevent tens of thousands of cases across the globe already. We can look at the UK and how many cases have been identified uh, before people have gone on to infect other folks has been uh, really astounding. And that gives me hope that you know other countries can successfully do this as well. Thank you. This concludes the March 10th press conference.